Comedy Channel. We have no motto. The Comedy Channel. You laugh until you stop. Comedy is our middle name. And channel be our last name, then, right? Yeah. The Comedy Channel. Three-dimensional programming on a two-dimensional screen. Brought to you by a one-dimensional person. What the hell? Mottos come and go. The Comedy Channel. This isn't Russian. But we're always there when you need us. Get the picture? The Comedy Channel. The Comedy Channel. Funny. Free. You are listening to the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. Welcome to another edition of the Constant Comedy Podcast with Art Bell and Vinny Favalli. I am not Art Bell. And I am not Vinny Favalli. There you go. We got that out of the way. Uh, Art, I'm excited about this week's guest. I know. Amazing that we even have him on because he's, he's so foundational, so important to comedy channel and comedy central right and we're talking about kevin murphy who was a key player on mystery science theater 3000 for the entire run and uh now now for years has been doing riff tracks which is another great concept a variation on mystery science theater where they 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 talk back at the movies as themselves they're not in character which is interesting. I know. You know, my kids turned me on to Rift Tracks, and uh, it is a great extension of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 concept because they can, you know, with Mystery Science Theater 3000, I don't know if you remember this, Vinny, but we had to, we had to use the worst B-movie monster pictures that not only were they bad, but they had no ownership. Right. You know, they have a public domain, but, 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 but it, did, it did suit the creative vision of the show. Yes, 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 yes. But, um, you know, with Rift Tracks, they can, you know, they could do the Godfather. They could do the Twilight series. My favorite, by the way, they did the Twilight series. Right. And uh, they, and amazing. we should say how they get away with that is by doing like, they call it rolling your own, right? They, they do commentary on it and you could play that in conjunction, but they're also doing, I believe a lot of like Steven Seagal movies, which we'll get into it with, with Kevin. Do you remember um, a precursor of, of mystery science theater? Uh, what's up tiger Lily? Woody Allen, oh, the Woody Allen film. Yeah. Yes. Do I remember it? Jeez, oh it my God. I didn't know. I honestly didn't know what to make of it at the time. And my understanding yeah. is that, well, for people who don't know, why don't you, you know, explain? Oh, right, yeah. That, so yeah. Uh, this was, uh, it's considered a Woody Allen film. I'm sure it's not one that he's most proud of. I think he's probably, hasn't talked about it a lot. But at the time, it was a big deal. Uh, he had he had written What's, What's New Pussycat, a um, couple of movies. And then uh, his managers got access to a, a Japanese spy film. And it was like, kind of like a Matt Helm Type film, yeah, it was James a real Bond, Japanese. yeah, yeah it was that, like a James Bond kind of thing. Yeah, that that kind of thing, and the idea came up that Woody would revoice the movie with a completely different plot. So, so it, 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 as opposed to Mystery Science Theater, where they talk to the film as it's playing, right. in this case, they just dubbed in all the lines. And I remember, uh, I think Louise Lasser was one of uh, the voices, and Mickey Rose, who's a great, great comedy writer who wrote Take the Money and Run with Woody Allen, that grew up together, uh, was also a writer on this film. And uh, I remember the plot was finding the recipe to the egg salad uh, uh Egg, the, the secret egg salad recipe. The great egg salad. We got to get the recipe for the great egg salad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was great. And when, when Mystery Science Theater, and I know you got a great story about this. When, when the tape found its way to us, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, this was before Comedy Channel launched. We were sitting around at one of the meetings or other, and we had a head writer. Eddie Gordetsky was the head writer, and Eddie said we need a show where the comedians talk back to the screen. It's a watch us watch television or watch us watch movies show. We need that. And everybody said, yeah, that sounds cool. You know? Um, Okay. And they started developing the show with Eddie and shortly after that. And again, this is a story I tell in the book shortly after that um, 
we got in the mail a tape with a note and the note said, hey, we heard you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that would interest Wait you? Wait a second. When you said they started developing it, so you're saying Eddie had this idea, which I think is a great idea, and separate from Mystery, he wasn't developing with Mystery Science Theater. No, no, he, no, just, he, just, he just said there's a need for something like that. He just said, this is a show we need to have. He didn't say there is one that, that exists because we didn't know of any that right. exists. Okay. So we were going to, we were going to develop it from scratch. And then it came in the mail and uh, we, we put the tape in and it was like, Oh my God, there's a show that we've been talking about. And we got on a plane like the next day and did the deal. That's incredible. And that's when, that's when you first met Kevin Murphy. That's when I first met Kevin Murphy. That was actually, you know, Kevin uh, is the, is the voice of um, Tom Servo of Tom Servo, but he wasn't the first voice at the time. Kevin was just on the writing staff and I met him and I just remember thinking, man, this is like one of the funniest guys I've ever met. He was really funny and a nice guy on top of it. Good. Well, your instincts uh, were good, and I, I'm excited to talk to him. So, you ready? Are you ready to do this? I am ready. I've never been more ready. Okay, here we go. Our next guest has made a career by doing the kind of things that would get you kicked out of a movie theater or shushed by your wife. Kevin Murphy was a writer and performer on the legendary comedy series Mystery Science Theater 3000 which was the Comedy Channel's breakout hit when we launched the network in 1989. In addition to writing for the show, he was the voice of Tom Servo for most of the show's 10 seasons on both Comedy Central and the Sci-Fi Channel, as well as the aptly titled featured film, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie. Hey, Vinny, that's like us naming uh, the channel, the Comedy Channel. Yeah, very meta. Lack of imagination or (laughs) brilliance? I'm going with brilliance. After a run of 179 I'm sorry, 97 episodes. Man, that's a lot. Murphy took a sabbatical from watching and commenting on bad movies and in 2001 spent the year by going to a different movie every day and wrote a book about this experience entitled The Year at the Movies, One Man's Film Going Odyssey. And I understand that was on four continents. What happened to the other ones? We'll get into that. In 2006, he joined fellow MST3K alum Mike Nelson and Bill Corbett on Riff Tracks whose stated goal was, we make movies funny. They also perform at Rift Tracks Live, where they host in-theater special events. These events are filmed in front of a live audience and simulcast to over 700 cinema screens all over the country with their partner, Fathom Events. You can also watch Kevin 24-7 on the Pluto streaming service, where they have their own channel. They've been busy during their forced COVID hiatus and, and plan on some special events before this year is over. Please welcome to the Constant Comedy Podcast, Kevin Murphy. Gentlemen, wow, it's really freaky. This is blowing my mind. I haven't seen either of your faces in it's it's over 20 years. Yes, maybe, maybe close to closer to 30. Yeah, I, I think know. it is. Yep. I know. And I was reminiscing with myself a little earlier, and I remembered the first time I met you. Uh-huh. It was at it was in Minneapolis, and I, I remember going back and and telling somebody, you know, I met Kevin Murphy, and he was this really warm and funny guy. Oh. But then I thought, am I mixing you up with someone else there? <laughs> was that you? <laughs> we all look the same, us Midwesterners, you know, man. They were all warm and fuzzy. That's do you gross. remember when? Do you remember our first visit? I mean, I think that was on our first visit when we. I get, well, yeah, I remember. You know, it's we're. we're you guys and I are going to have different perspectives because we were on different sides of this whole thing. Well, that's why we're doing and the podcast. We want was, to hear what assholes we were. It was <laughs> no, it was kind of fun. Well, you know, first of all, um, I think you, uh, a few of you guys came in, and uh, I was very happy that not all of you were wearing suits because I was always suspicious of guys wearing suits. Uh, at that time, because we had just started this relationship and com- the comedy channel was part of HBO. And then a couple of suits came in and we had a couple of calls and, you know, there's lawyers and agents. And, uh, but uh, I think you just wanted to make sure that we actually knew what the fuck we were doing by, <laughs> by coming in <laughs> and seeing, cause that's it. We, yeah. we, saw, we, we saw the tape. Yeah. We heard about, you know, what you were doing. We, 
it was too good to be true. <laughs> and we wanted to go, honestly, God, we wanted to go out and just see like, what are these guys? Do? How do they do? And it? also art. I think we were really concerned to help them make sure that it was legal, what they were doing, because yeah, well, you know, to talk over movies when you guys were the UHF version of it, I'm sure you right. probably follow the rules, but maybe not all the time. Oh no, no, we didn't. Are you kidding? We were so liable at that time. That's why you don't <laughs> see any of those episodes because uh, we just went back into yeah KTMA channel 23, the lowest rated, UHF station. You got to be pretty low to be the lowest rated UHF station. <laughs> it's practically radio. Yeah, it is. And uh, so we just, we had this whole film library of, you know, for us, wonderful things. And we just go back and say, you know, take a look at the, you know, they're on the big videotapes around, they're on the, you know, the betas and yeah, this looks good. What is this? Uh, phase four. It's about ants taking over the planets. You know, that looks good to me. <laughs> I missed that the, one. The green slime was another one. We had the Thunderbirds library. Oh yeah, that was great. that was great. Uh, so and no, we didn't ask anybody's permission to do it. We just did it, and uh, eventually, you know, of course, when we went to you guys, uh, lawyers immediately descended upon us and said, "Well, we got to make sure we can do this, or we're going to have to clear the rights," which was done, but it did limit what we could do. But for me, limiting what we could do was always sort of an advantage because we could only get true crap. And, and true crap worked really well for us because we had no budget on our end either. And, yeah. and, you know, we were, I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, but you know, the comedy channel was built on running short comedy clips with VJs introducing them. And yes. they were at odds with what we were trying to do. Poor art had the idea built on that premise. And then we found out our, what, like uh, before it launched that that was the yeah, eight weeks before the launch, yeah. they took away our permission to do that. So we were doing what you were doing and <laughs> so we, we had to know better. <laughs> We had to go to plan B and you know what plan B was? We didn't have a plan B. No, I had yeah. to get the, the channel launch. Anyway. We had to call them promotional. We ha it, it limited our library to HBO run movies. Yeah. And, was, and I recall terrible. a lot of reruns of CPO Sharky. Yes. yes. Yeah. There were a lot and, of reruns uh, of everything, including mystery science theater 3000, but I just do want to get back to that sort of legal thing because that was, that yeah. was a dominating part of my job. Yeah. After I it met you guys, easy. I was responsible for finding movies for you. I'm not a lawyer, but I did learn everything in the world about, you know, public domain <laughs> movies and stuff. And yeah. I have to say this, this is probably something you don't recall. I would send you guys movie after movie oh, and yeah. I got them all out of this book. This is, I'm holding it up. Oh yeah. yeah. This, is a, this is a video thing. Psychotronic yep. encyclopedia of film. It had the weirdest films and Eddie Gordetsky gave it to me. He says, this Love is where we get our films. And, and so I said, hey, great. Still earmarked, right? I put yes. earmarks in there. <laughs> I must have sent you guys 10 films and you'd send nine of them back and say, what are you yeah. crazy? What was well, going on? Yeah. Art, you also sent us a copy of the book. Did I? Uh, somebody did. And we used it too. So we were on our end whipping through Psychotronic and, and you were on your end whipping through Psychotronic and we'd try you know can, can we do this one no we can't do this one we can't get the rights how about this one can you do this and you'd send us a bunch that you got the rights to and then we'd say no it, it was i think the average was we would pick one out of every 20 movies we'd screen 20 geez i yeah. was being generous for the sake of the podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i'll tell you here's here's one of the impressions that i had when you guys came in because one of the guys who came in was eddie gordetsky and he immediately put me at ease because first of all, it's like, yeah, whatever, the, whatever you want, we'll, we'll make it happen. It, 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 it's fine. Don't worry about it. I, I want to go someplace and have a good beer and a steak. There's any place around. I can do that. Um, that is so him. For and, the folks, it, for the folks great. at home, for the folks at home, Eddie Gordetsky was the head writer at comedy channel. And it's going to be a contest between Kevin Murphy and me to see who does a better impression. Of, uh, I can do Edward. one too. You know, comedy doesn't always have to be funny. Yeah, that was good. He may win. He may win. All right, we'll get back to that. But, but Eddie, but wait, I just want to add, Eddie is a, a legend in the business. He, he was writing for SCTV. Look at these credits. SCTV, yeah. David Letterman, and SNL. Not long runs on all of those shows, but he was on it. And then he was big in radio, I think, in Boston. He was doing comedy on, on, on uh, the big FM station there. So you must yeah. have loved that, Kevin, when, when you met him. He was a guy that once you met him, uh, you knew that if someone else knew him, that you were in good company because he was, in the first of all, he was super nice, but he also didn't tolerate people who didn't get it. And, uh, and, 
<laughs> a lot of and, people didn't get it. <laughs> and we're, and, and he's just, I've met a few people like that uh, in my life. Eddie's one of them. Another uh, is Ben Acker. I don't know if you know Ben Acker. He's, oh. he's in Los Angeles, but he's sort of like this generation's Eddie Gordetsky. Uh, everyone knows Ben and no one knows why everybody knows Ben, but everyone knew Eddie and nobody knew why everybody knew Eddie, but everyone knew Eddie. And yeah, I, re- I recall he sat in on your, uh, on one of your writers' meetings early yes, on. Yes, but he wasn't a network executive type. He was just there to help. I think no, right? he's hired gun, and that was yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, and he was very helpful early on. And I think the the nervousness that we had was we wanted to prove that we could do it in Minneapolis because none of us wanted to move to New York. Um, so in six weeks from the time we got our contract, um, we rented the warehouse. We built the sets, we wrote the first four episodes and we were ready to shoot. So that was, that was, and there were, there were 10 of us. So, you know, we had the writers building sets, which was a bad idea. I remember, I I remember that when we were doing the contract, it was very clear. I don't know. I mean, we might've put in the contract because you guys were so adamant about it. We don't want to leave Minneapolis. And that was, that was a little disappointing to us because we liked you guys, but here's the thing. Um, before that happened, before Comedy Channel came into your life and you were making these things, you know, for fun at the, at the station, at right. the station, how did that group come together? How did you guys come together? Well, it all, it mainly revolved around Joel at that time because Joel had moved back from, you know, he'd had, had, he'd had some success. He'd been on Saturday Night Live and David Letterman, and, right. but he didn't want to do the sitcom thing and he didn't find a lot of outlets for himself. So he came back to Minneapolis and rented a warehouse, uh, a, a space, a studio in a b- big old warehouse district in Minneapolis. And uh, my friend at the time, uh, Jim Mallon, who was the producer of uh, Mystery Science Theater for a long time, um, was in the same uh, building editing his horror, his fishing horror movie, Bloodhook, uh, originally Blood. titled Musky Madness, better title. But they met and Jim said, I'm now the production manager at a crappy little TV station. You got any ideas to do something? You know, come see me. We can see if we can get it on the air. And Joel came with sort of like the bones of the whole idea. And uh, he also brought along uh, Trace Beaulieu and uh, Josh Weinstein because they they all worked together at the local comedy uh, clubs. And, uh, And so the after Joel sort of initiated the idea, everyone got together. We brainstormed to try to turn it into something that resembled a TV show. And then just said, what the hell? We'll try it. We went to the station manager. He didn't care. He said, as long as you're doing it off hours in your own time, I don't give a damn what you do in there. You sound like uh, SCTV network. Like Guy Caballero was running what? the channel. <laughs> he <laughs> was, was Brickley. Again, he was a really sweet guy, but he was up against it because he had been given the impossible task of making money with this crappy little tv station that nobody was watching yeah you weren't affiliated with any network it was uhf so there was no you weren't even an independent i mean at uhf that's even lower like we said earlier it was a loose it was a guy who owned the guy who owned it was from atlanta i think and he owned like half a dozen uhf stations and also he had billions and other things so he really didn't care right as long as it made some money and it didn't make any money and it's essentially went bankrupt after three years, right when we got picked up by oh, Comedy wow. Channel. Wow. <laughs> amazing so, timing. The timing was amazing. I'm glad we saved you. Yes, yeah, and I, I do want to mention um, a couple of things. One, you mentioned the lawyers at HBO yeah. getting all uh, upset about that. HBO was in the business of licensing movies. I mean, that's basically what they did. They had a team of lawyers who cared about that. It's in the name, home box office. <laughs> like the guy at the at the UHF station who seemed to have never heard of the licensing concept or, <laughs> or you know, copyrights and stuff like that. Right. So when when we told them we were going to do this with you, I mean, they just had a heart attack. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know what we were going to do. They had no idea. And we said, yeah, they're going to do it with The Godfather and films like that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> So um, that would have put them in bad shape with the uh, studios they were doing business with. Anyway, we figured it out. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is, you know, you guys were happy to see us because we, you know, we saved you. We were happy to see you because you saved us. Yeah. And I just, I, I want you to know how important you were to us. It was an odd, well, it, we, we sort of realized it. Um, 
because we took this is one of the things we there was a big gap and i know it was just because of the way these things work between our first season and our second season when negotiations were being done and so we were sitting and we were you know thinking of remodeling the set and doing things and waiting for the contract track to come through and we thought you know we're providing them with two hours of programming and for about as cheap as they're going to get it. So we thought, yeah, they're going to come back. We really didn't, we weren't worried that we wouldn't get another um, season uh, because the response had been really good and we got good press. So, so you're right. It was a mutually beneficial um, relationship there for sure. I'll never forget when uh, I was working with the sales group at that time. And that's mm-hmm. a tough crowd because they have to sell this stuff. You know, we're all doing our own thing on the comedy front, but they have to sell it to real advertisers. And I remember Larry Divney popped the tape in and the reaction was amazing. Just yeah. this, this, we were just, it was a sigh of relief. It's like, okay, we're not just shilling this vaporware that Art Bell came up with of, of, <laughs> of you know, hosts Excuse that me. Were, were, were barely acknowledging the clips that they were playing for three quarters of their show. I mean, there was so much anger for a comedy network. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was a thing about Mystery Science was that it, it, it didn't look good on paper. You actually had to see how it worked. So the demo was really important because right. we said, and we said that we can, we can do like a treatment or we can do a pitch, but really all we have to do is show these guys how it works oh. and you're going to get it immediately. And it was yeah, wonderful. We sure sort did. of like South Park, you know, they, they sort of went through the same experience and they, they said, you, you can't, we can't describe to you what we do. You have to experience it. And, and I, I heard that South Park and I took some pride in this and you should too, Kevin, that, you know, their Genesis was interesting where they had done a Christmas card, a, v, a VHS Christmas card, yep. uh, Jesus versus Santa, a very low budget. Yes. And, and it made the rounds and it went that version of viral, you know, yep. just sending a VHS tape and pretty much they could choose what network and they chose Comedy Central because of all the things that had been done. They felt yeah. that they would have more freedom a lot because of what you did. We did the State of the Union, Art and I. We, we put right. President Bush on the air, you know, and made <laughs> which was kind of your model. It was political science 3000, you know? Yeah, we, yeah. we had Al Franken goofing on George Bush and, and oh, a yeah. bunch of comedians. So uh, that's kind of nice that the DNA was there in the beginning. Sure, absolutely. So now I just, I know we're going to jump all over the place. I am addicted to your channel uh, on Pluto. I, oh. I, I watch it 24. I noticed like, the quality <laughs> of films, not, not the writing quality, but the physical quality. Some of these films yeah. look like really good. They must, uh, who, I don't yeah. know who's in charge of it. Like how, how did that happen? And how are you getting away with it? Is it even well, legal? We're weird. Everything that you see there, everything we, we license everything we can because public domain is a very strange yeah. territory. It's difficult to say. So uh, we do what, you know, due diligence, as they say, on everything and, uh, and pay a lot of license fees. And, you know, I learned this a long time ago that uh, the world is full of uh, really bad movies with really decent production values. <laughs> Right. And a lot it's of not those, just Ed Wood. It's not just that. No, that's Steven Seagal's entire thing is that right. he does these terrible films and, but they have decent production values. You can, we, our, you know, our, our, the titles we do for Rift Tracks sort of span the spectrum from barely watchable. Like uh, one of the titles we're going to do soon is called Baby Ghost, <laughs> uh, which stars Joe Estevez and some of the worst special effects you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> To uh, we're, we're writing one now called The Minion, which is a Dolph Lundgren saves the world from the, from the devil uh, movie, which has decent, good production values. So our uh, C- CEO at Rift Tracks, David G. Martin, is uh, he knows where to look just to get us the screeners. And then it's our job, David and I mainly pour through the screeners in order to find things that are worth doing and uh, again it's about a 20 to 1 ratio but it might even be worse these days more like See, 30 to 1 ratio yeah, so wait then now you're not just licensing though you you do you have to get permission to goof on it or do they not care when they're licensing uh, they know what we're going to do when we do it because our reputation precedes us by now right. um and then the ones here's the, the the magic that got riff tracks on the map in the first place was we wanted to be able to do first run movies 
we wanted to be able to do classic movies. Uh, we wanted to be able to take a shot at like Casablanca if we wanted to. So uh, uh, when it first started, uh, that was the idea. And we'd just do first run movies and we would essentially uh, sell a podcast. An MP3 right, file or an MP3 file yeah, that right. you would sync up with the movie and watch it, roll your own at home. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what got us going. And, uh, and so people loved that. And we, we very quickly shot through the library of like every middling to bad first run movie that was available on say Netflix, right. Where people could actually find them and then sync them up. And, uh, and that got our foot in the door and got us some attention, which was what we needed when we first started. Um, how did you guys come together? You know, we, we should really tell the, the listeners, um, that don't know about riff tracks, right? Yeah. You, you guys were alumni of mystery science theater. Yeah. Mike Nelson was the, he's the guy who took over for Joel, uh, when Joel left and, uh, Bill Corbett took over for traceable you, uh, playing the puppet crow right? and, uh, and other roles. And we really liked working together and none of us was really enchanted by the prospect of having to go to Hollywood after all of the freedom that we'd had doing mystery science theater and, and going to work for somebody else. I just, that didn't really thrill me. I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. I'd been there. Sorry, Los Angeles, but <laughs> even with the winters, I still prefer Minnesota. Um, so we tried to figure out a way to do this. And oddly enough, we ended up, our, com our company ended up being centered in San Diego. And that's David Martin, who's the, the CEO of the company, gave us a shot and said, well, let's see if this, if we can make it, you know, find a name for the whole thing, put it online and uh, essentially sell these Brilliant. MP3 files and sync them up. But uh, David also was part of a, um, a company called Legend Films, and they had a big library of some pretty bad movies. So we did some of their movies as well uh, as complete riffs you know everything's together and, and as you're... yourself not characters that's a big distinction for mystery science there was no running storyline yeah the the puppets could get away with murder i mean truly literally get away with murder they could <laughs> kill each other and then come back to life and uh, right and people gave the puppets a lot of latitude because they could say things that normal human beings can't uh and again get away with it so we had to make sure that we were as funny as possible uh it really came down to um, I, and I think for Mike and Bill and I, as much as we love doing the sketches, mystery science theater and developing the characters, we knew that the, the, the show lived and died on the quality of the movie riffing. Absolutely. I prefer, I mean, your chat, I know your channel side by side with the mystery science channel mm -hmm. on Pluto. And I watch that too, but I, 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 I watch yours longer, the riff tracks longer because it's, <laughs> it's great. It's like having my, my wife, I just put it on. I don't even tell her. And she's just <laughs> laughing because she's just thinking like, what the, is this, did that character really say that? Yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, thanks. I'm sorry. I haven't seen Pluto because, um, but it's a streaming That's, service. No, no, yeah. I know what it is. Well, <laughs> for the listeners, Jesus, all right, you haven't worn a suit. We do have listeners. You and I are listening. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, but what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. So the, on the one on Pluto, those are the complete ones with the movie and the riff track. Yeah. And okay. some live stuff too. And I, I just want to add, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm such a big fan, Kevin. So I'm sorry for gushing. Yeah, well, we That's okay. But on, on the Pluto too, Art, what they're doing is they're doing the ones where I guess they're in a studio riffing on it. But the right. live ones are so goddamn great because oh, fun. there's a laugh track, which I'm not, I don't mind the laugh track when it's genuine. Yeah. Uh, it helps me with the flow. And I love Love, love, love. A lot of the movies you do are four, three aspect ratio. So when yeah. you guys do the, the the boxes where you guys, the three of you are on the right side of the screen, I mean, yeah. it fills the screen up so beautifully. And, uh, and and you guys really, it's an amazing dance that you do with the movie. Thanks. You know, the, back and forth. the live shows are really gratifying because, you know, most of the year what we do, you know, we talk into a microphone in, in this studio behind that you can see here. And, and then it goes out into the world and the reaction we get is online delayed a few weeks after we've done it. But when you perform this stuff live, the reaction is so strong and so immediate. Uh, then, you know, we build off the audience and the audience builds off of us. And it's just a great intimacy that we have, even with the, you know, we're live in Nashville. That's where we usually do it out of the Belcourt theater in Nashville. And then we simulcast these things. So it's live when, 
it's delivered to the theaters for the most part. And I think people catch that intimacy um, and, and react to it as well, because we get great reactions right after the show from people of theaters all over the country. That's seen it just yeah, I, I saw had a fantastic time. I saw one of those, I guess a couple of years ago. Oh yeah. I knew you were going to ask me that. I can't remember <laughs> my kids, my kids who discovered you and, and actually turned me on to riff tracks. I didn't even know you were doing it. I wasn't oh, paying cool. attention. Good and, kids. And Smart they, kids. They are good kids. Anyway. So, so the thing is they said, okay, so it's going to be at the movie theater. And I was like, seriously. And, and it was so much fun, mostly for not only watching you guys, but for watching the live audience, yeah. seeing yeah. how much fun they were having. That was great. It's, we learned that when we pitched mystery science theater, the movie that, uh, and, and did a, a few, a couple early live shows with mystery science theater, that what we do, uh, when it's done live, uh, just compounds the funny, you know, how a good comedy, the audience supports it as well. And it just builds and it becomes a real experience, not different than what you have when you watch it at home. Yeah. That's, that, that's pretty that's amazing. Wild. So like, the, the whole writer procedure, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about that plenty of times. And I actually yeah. had the good fortune to sit on a writer's meeting uh, once when I was out there. It's still mm -hmm. one of my fondest memories ever. Um, because it was so much fun. It was a fun room. Yeah. It, it was a really fun room. Do you guys find yourself, and, I, and this is kind of an obnoxious question. Do you find yourself reusing jokes? I mean, so much of what, what you make fun of is the bad quality of the production. Right. Yeah. Um, or like in twilight yeah. when you did twilight and <laughs> which is, which was my favorite, by the way, I just loved it. Um, because whenever the, the Twilight done it for the movie theater or for or a separate. Oh uh, no, that was just yeah, you, you buy the MP3 and sync it up yeah, yourself. That one is a hard one, right? Your original Kickstarter was to try to license that one, right? Yeah, there was no that, that fucking was way. That was no <laughs> way. You think they were going to blow that franchise? Said on, they they had the MSG, uh -uh. which is great. No. On, on tracks. But but what I was going to say is there's a, there's a bit in there that you used multiple times during the movie because there were so many yeah. pregnant pauses there yeah. when you went line. Yeah. line like yeah, <laughs> had forgotten what they were going to say and then right. it occurred to me geez so many movies are like that i wonder if they do that in other movies now i have to confess as much as i love you guys i am not familiar with your entire oeuvre oh, that's okay so um did did do you find yourself like facing the same opportunities and using the same jokes well we have a few beats that we do all the time because they're sort of like fan favorites and and that line joke we we limited pretty much to twilight because twilight was still guilty of having these ridiculously pointless pregnant pauses <laughs> but like uh we have a recurring character of mike doing the voice of nick nolte who shows up in like every third film so just <laughs> something about nick you know you know rum rummaging through a dumpster in his pajamas you know that we add in there and uh he always we give him these, and so he's given him his own personality uh, sort of like what we did with jack perkins at mystery science theater we we just took the guy who we loved and just gave him a really obtuse character. And Nick is, uh, you know, like he'll, he'll find himself buying bear gallbladder on the black market. You know, we give him all these creepy little side businesses, which Nick probably never would do. But when you see him, you know, when he used, was in the public eye and was always sort of bad well, that for picture, him. And that picture. That he accidentally created a persona for himself right. that we just love. So, so Nick shows up a lot. And Crocodile Dundee, whenever a knife appears in a, in a movie, <laughs> then we have to ask Crocodile whether that's a knife or not. And he's sort of like our pop-in. For some reason, Crocodile Dundee is always available for us for knife authentication. Oh, my God. Did you, and you also, I think, didn't you redo some of the mysteries, not redo, but do some of the same movies that you did? With, I think Manos, Hand yeah. of Fate was on. We've you, done a few. And, and some of the, you probably have new jokes that you're adding to what you wrote before. We completely rewrite the scripts for those um, because of that purpose, because we don't want to hold right. it uh, in comparison that way with Mystery Science. Mystery Science was its own thing with its right. own universe, and those jokes belong over there. So we have some you know, two uh, brilliant young senior writers who are much younger than I. Um, Sean Thomason and Connor Lestalka. And uh, they bring a perspective that we don't have. And they've never seen a lot of these titles, much less the Mystery Science Theater episodes. So they come at it fresh. 
And that's really helpful for us. And uh, also their references are decades newer than ours, which is <laughs> desperately needed for us because you can't keep on going back to like our Miss Brooks and Steve Allen. You know, that, no. you, know, you know, that's a very interesting point. But I like those. Something, <laughs> something I've always noticed about comedy is as you get older, and I'm not in the comedy business anymore. Vinny was in there much longer than I was. But as you get older, you kind of almost age out of it a little bit because the, the contemporary references yeah. are so much harder to, to keep on top of. I mean, my kids change their language every two weeks, right? you know, yes. and I'm asking them what you're talking about. What do you mean? What do you, you know? And it's like, Hey dad, you didn't see that. Are you kidding me? You don't know about that. Actually, yeah. Vinny says that a lot to me too. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Vinny, Vinny is one of those guys who's like so much more on top of popular culture than a lot uh, of people. How yeah. do you do that? How do you stay on, on top of it? Well, if your comedy is referential, then you just have to sort of, turn yourself into a drift net for what's for the zeitgeist, you know, for what's happening now and draw something that's of value for yourself and reflect it back and make a joke out of it. That, otherwise it's not even worth spending your time just to bring up something because you think it's funny or because you think it's current, you know, that's not, I don't, we don't, I don't think we ever make jokes just for something that's current. As a matter of fact, we eject out of hand doing a lot of, um, of the moment or of the news cycle sort of jokes. Political stuff is out for that reason, I guess. Yeah, we're building a we're building a library and we want, you know, the humor to be evergreen so that people can laugh at it five years from now without having to go back and look at Wikipedia and say, what the hell was that that they were referencing? Well, except that is a thing. I mean, I know you have I know there's is it you guys who do the annotated versions of your stuff, of your comments? <laughs> we we often bring that up. up. Yeah, it's uh, we and there are a few people who do that on their own on uh, YouTube, which is kind of fun. Um, yeah, because yes, yeah, so we do have. We're not. Um, we're we're fond of obscurity sometimes. Yeah, and it works. By the way, I you know again not to bring up my kids for the third time, but there they are. You know when I'm watching with my kids. <laughs> They're laughing at stuff I don't get, and I'm laughing at stuff they don't get, and it's okay, you know. Right. You know, yeah. the, you know, either we explain it to each other, or we just move on. Um, I think that's part of the fun. How young is the audience? How, uh, Kevin? Do you notice, like, when you're looking out into the theater, the age of the audience? Does it vary? If Vinny, it's so cool because the audience are people my age and older Great. who are bringing their kids, and sometimes now their grandkids. <laughs> to these things and that's, that's i just think that's great that people hook on to it there are watch parties on college campuses all over the place for mystery science theater and uh, there are watch parties online as well of course right now um and it's 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 a very very broad there's age is not a problem with us and I, uh i could see dad leading over to his kid going he like you're like the paul mccartney in wings now he used to right. be called mst 3000 what's that <laughs> Oh, we were Mike Nelson. We were uh, referencing Ralph Bellamy was uh, brought up, and so Mike said, "Unsolicited, don't look at Wikipedia." To our our two uh, younger writers, saying, "Do you know who this is?" Just showed a picture of who it was, and one of them, Sean, came back and said, "I don't know his name or who the hell he is, but I know he was in Trading Places." Oh, that's a forty-year-old movie now. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So yeah. even the stuff that we feel is newer is already old. Oh my god! Amazing. That's you just... know what? It's it's worth noting at this point, by the way, that you know, I mean, the reason that Vinny and I are doing the podcast is because it's the thirtieth anniversary of the launch of Comedy Central, which is of oh, course yeah. a successor. Um, but you, you know, Mystery Science Theater, thirty-one or two years old at this point. Yeah, um, that is a long time for a comedy entity to stay around. I it mean, is. you know, you had Mad Max, a big one, uh, and Saturday Night Live, but, you know, yeah. you guys are up there. You guys yeah, are we're up there. It's true. Um, and I think it's because of the movie riffing. I think it's something that we all have in common is that we see stuff that's delivered to us, and, we're you know, nobody wants to just sit. None of our audience just wants to sit there and take it. So talking back to the theater, to, to the movie is a bit of catharsis for people. And I think people of all ages identify with that. Have you done, um, I know you talked about your disdain or not a fan of Forrest Gump and yeah. maybe Patch Adams, which I, I, I agree with you. Forrest Gump, I have to embarrass to say, I loved it when it came out. I felt yeah. for every 
trope it did, the music, everything. And then on my own, I, I, I turned on it horribly, like, what the <laughs> fuck? And that man was, when he talks about John Lennon, you know, that on the yes. Joe, and that man was assassinated 10 years later, you know. Yeah. Uh, but have you ever, have you done that film? Have you written no. that one? Um, no, it's too angry. <laughs> I think, well, it, there's something, there's also a chemistry that has to happen in the film, and that is that there need to be places for us to fit in our punchlines, right? For the setups. And, uh, and that one's just never been high on our list. Uh, we tend to do more of the uh, genre-based films than conventional dramas, with a few exceptions. And right, so if we're going right. to do a conventional drama, well, I wouldn't call Casablanca a conventional drama, but we did do a riff of Casablanca. And when we do movies like that, or we've done The Lord of the Rings, when we do movies we like, it ends up being more like a roast. Than okay. That's yeah, good. I like that. Wait, were you, we have a lot of affection for, for Casablanca. Yeah, All of us love it. And you could talk about that, uh, Peter Lorre, not necessarily in the context of the movie, just on oh, yeah. just doing his voice and what he's done. What a face. I mean, oh. God, what a face for camera. All those faces at the time. It was at a time when, when faces sold movies rather than, I mean, as much as stories and themes was, you know, you think of the faces in that film, Casablanca, Ogarte, you know, Peter Lorre and, and, uh, uh, Sam and Rick and, and uh, you know, who doesn't like to look at Ingrid Bergman? Right. You know? So that, that was really fun. But the thing that we dig into on that is how overdrawn the drama is in it. It's very stagey and, and you know, not, not so far out of the silent era that there still aren't some of those conventions because some of the actors who were That's in the movie point. That's actually a good point. That's actually a really film. good point. So it's very stagey and presentational and we could have some fun with that because that's nothing like films made these days, except maybe by a uh, guy Madden, you know, mm -hmm. that's about the only person I can think of does think that stagey or Wes Anderson. When there's a movie like the, 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 the disaster artist, you know, the, yeah. the original of that, right. Which I'm sure was on your list. Are you disappointed sometimes and maybe with Ed Wood when, when Hollywood acknowledges it and then gives you too much information about like i love plan nine on its own i love yeah. ed wood i think it's a great movie but yeah. plan nine to me truly is the holy grail and disaster artist but then when you see it redone how does that make you feel just as a bad movie aficionado uh i i liked i read the book the disaster artist and i liked it much more i you know that's sort of a hackneyed thing to say i like the book a lot more than the movie <laughs> but with the disaster artist it's true because we actually got to meet greg sestero the fellow who wrote the disaster artist and uh and he's a real sweet guy and he sort of found himself in this situation that completely baffled him and he wasn't sure how he got there but suddenly he was you know tommy was so his best friend and he never expected that to happen um but he ended up having affection for the guy and that comes a lot out a lot more uh, in the book than it does in the movie where, you know, Tommy is, Tommy's already weird enough right. to have a character of him made is, is, you know, even weirder. Um, and the movie stands up for you though. The, the original, the, 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 yeah, the, yeah. Right. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm getting everything. Yeah, that's okay. Stands up. I mean, or sits down. The room <laughs> is a gem for us. It's, yeah. it, it's that's everything. What, that's I'm sorry. Yeah. I should have phrased that differently. Cool. Right. The room is the yeah. movie that ends up becoming all of these other things, but yeah. like the, the room, it, you, it doesn't need any extra help in your mind. No. Right. I mean, the book was no. great Yeah, because it gives you behind the scenes and insight. Yeah. But uh, no, we did the, we did the room live. It, that, it's, it's a story of itself trying to license the thing. Cause Tommy does all his own licensing and business. And as a matter of fact, he, uh, he, he famously would get on the phone first with a fake accent and, and say that he was Tommy's assistant, Johnny. Oh my God. And that you, you'll have to wait until I get Tommy on the phone. He's, Tommy's not here right now. So you'll have to wait. And, and, and then yeah. like 30 seconds later, hello, this is Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> you'll talk to Johnny. Yes, that's okay. No, that's good. Yeah. So you've, you've uh, met him? I did not, but Mike did. Mike and uh, David Martin um, met him in LA <laughs> at some premiere and he showed up for some reason soaking wet to this thing. I don't know why. He is, you know, dressed in white, 
you know, white shirt, I think, and white. And it wasn't raining out or anything? No, no. It's just, you know, a beautiful day in L.A., but he showed up soaking wet for some reason. So it's a it's an he's he's an odd man i think it's not too far to well, say that he's an odd based on man. His, based on watching his movie just so everybody knows i mean that, that the room is considered by some as the worst uh movie ever made i guess oh we or found maybe, worse oh let me tell you guys no no no. I, 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 but, <laughs> but, you know when you watch it it's just such a head scratcher like how, it is. how did this happen and and uh anyway it happened and actually that gets me to my next question just to change gears a little tiny bit uh-huh. your life has been about bad movies but you seem to have a little you harbor a little anger against bad movies it seems um, <laughs> no no i'm no i'm well, serious i mean you're trying to get to an intervention Kevin. i absolutely yeah. agree Talk with you Art. i no, absolutely no, agree you. with you and and here's my thing um <laughs> i have an affection for these you know sort of amateur movie makers who go out of their way to it's the story of ed wood i have an affection for ed wood because ed wood really he was an uncynical man he really wanted to make something great and something entertaining and that was his and he, but he was just incapable of it he just couldn't do it there was that famous uh singer i can't remember her name but she was a rich new york society dame and she wanted to sing and so she'd sing classical music and she was terrible but she loved it and so since she had the money she was allowed to do it well a lot of these uh you know small independent filmmakers they have that love of cinema and they really want to do it but they just don't have the talent so it's amazing enough that they finish the film um and I have an affection for people like that. The people I get angry at are the people, the cynical filmmakers, the ones who just take the money and run and don't even care, don't even try. They might even be accomplished filmmakers, uh, technically, but they're not even, they're not even, they're they're essentially phoning it in. They're taking a crappy script and they're putting in some actors who are gonna draw a little bit and they're going direct to video and they're making their coin. Right. And they really don't care about the quality of the film or what sort of noxious stuff they're putting out into the world. And traditionally, a lot of that stuff is, you know, a lot of the films that get me pissed off in that way is their way of dressing them up is by having a lot of, uh, what would you say, gratuitous sex and violence, but usually sexual violence and a lot of it directed towards women. And that sort of stuff really pisses me off because it was sort of a trope for a while through the 80s and the 90s. And we've watched a lot of those films. And, uh, and we do edit sometimes for length and for content. And, but when I have to edit something for content in a movie like that, I will sometimes bring it back to the group and say, I don't think we should do this movie at all. It's just that the point of view of this movie is so toxic. Right. I don't think even joking on it is going to be helpful. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, do you think that's a, you know, I have a friend who said there's never been a good movie made after 1980. Now, that's extreme. (laughs) (laughs) How old is this friend of yours? He's he's my age, which we won't go into that. He's Ralph Bellamy's age. Actually, he's a comedy writer in L.A. uh, Ah, Of of note. Um, Anyway, he, uh, the reason I bring that up is, do you think this is, and we were just talking about Casablanca, do you think this is like a modern phenomenon? I mean, have movies gotten worse over the years? Because we remember the old ones, at least the three of us, we remember the old ones that are great with such affection. Yeah. You know, they were so, they were almost perfect by comparison. Um, but there must have been other movies made that we ne- just never see because they got lost or, you know, destroyed or something that were bad. But do you think it's, it's there's more bad movies and irresponsible oh, yeah. movies made now than, than ever before? I think there's a lot more bad movies made because it's a lot cheaper to make movies and to distribute movies than it ever was before. And you don't need a studio in order to get something noticed on YouTube or, or so many other venues. Um, But there's still a lot of good filmmaking being done by studios and by independents and by, you know, individuals. Um, I think it just gets harder to find because there's so much noise in the channels now. Um, it's difficult to find, and it's difficult for those things to get it, theatrical releases. I mean, right now in particular because of COVID, but in general, because it's so, it's such an expensive operation to run a theater chain. So indies and a lot, you know, most only big cities have rep houses anymore, you know, have in, independent uh, houses, you know, things like the film forum and, and uh, the music box in Chicago. Um, so it's harder for indies to, 
to be independent. Uh, Minneapolis still has maybe one theater that does repertory independent film. And, and that's, they only do that because they make their coin off of doing some big releases on, on the weekends. Um, so it's just harder for good stuff to get out there. So you really have to dig around and find it. I'm, I thank God that the Criterion channel is around. Right. It's so yeah. good. So it good. is. And, it Turner, is. And, and Turner, I love Turner classic movies, although that when they apologize for, you know, the, the films of, uh, from 50 years ago, the blackface things, it's like, we're going to show you this great film. And now we're going to tell you why you should feel guilty for watching it. So <laughs> that, that that's, gets a little, uh, well, it's a sign of the times. And I think it's good that people are, um, at least more alert to this than they used to be. Absolutely. That, but the they overexplained it. I, I, I think there's a little bit too much discussion about, like, I, we get it and put the yeah. advisory up front the way you'd say this movie is rated, you know, X, you know, yeah. to, 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 to give you a heads up. Yeah. I want to talk about, so I love that your version of detoxing from Mystery Science Theater, almost, you know, 400 hours of movie right. watching was yeah. to spend every day in a movie theater watching yep. a movie every day. <laughs> I, I just thought that is amazing. And four continents, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's Were right, there yes. any, besides all the other interesting things that happened, then it really is a, a great book. Um, Thank you. Were, were you moved by any movie? Were you surprised by? Oh my oh, God, yeah. I, I love this film. Like, oh, was yeah. yeah? That, that happened a few times. Um, you know, D.W. Griffith was always a problem. He's one of those problematic filmmakers, Absolutely. but he also made Broken Blossoms, which is a very dramatic and moving film. And I was in Finland. And so Dankula, up above the Arctic Circle, the Midnight Sun Film Festival, which is no small film festival. They, they named, uh, one of their first guests was um, uh, Sam Fuller. And they, they loved him so much that they had him back and they named one of the streets in the town, Sam Fuller Avenue. Oh, wow. Uh, That's great. But uh, they had, they put up this old pre-war Polish circus tent from, you know, it's big, huge, heavy canvas tent uh, in the parking lot, the school parking lot in town. And they would show films in there Well, they showed broken uh, blossoms with uh, the string ensemble from France called Avanti. And this is at about 10 o'clock at night. And while the film is going on, a thunderstorm comes up outside. And so you can hear this and it's adding to the tension of the film and the drama while the, while the string ensemble is playing and nobody's stopping, even though the wind's getting really bad, as a matter of fact, and there's some rips coming in, in the top of the canvas and suddenly the screen starts flapping with the storm. And just when um, the whole film wraps up and it has this terribly tragic ending and the the orchestra reflects that with this very soft sort of um, decrescendo and the storm calmed down and it finished and everyone in the theater was on their feet. It was just, wow, it was a stunning moment and one that was very important to me. And the other, I'll just tell you one other quick story. My, at the time, four-year-old uh, nephew, Thomas, who is now a, uh, an astrophysicist at RPI in New York. So, <laughs> Things change. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, uh, I had this idea, one of the gags I was doing, because there were some gimmicks I did in the book to, in order to make it more fun and entertaining and something to write about. So um, I talk about smug, I had a whole chapter about smuggling food into the theater, which I love right. to do. I, you know, right. I hate spending $10 for a bo you know, a bucket of I think I popcorn that costs 30 cents. On Thanksgiving, you were doing it, right? On Thanksgiving, I smuggled an entire Thanksgiving dinner into the theater. <laughs> So uh, my <laughs> wife found this big old um, army surplus coat and she sewed pockets inside of it. Oh, and I put I Tupperware in there uh, and I had a roll up table that I put down the back. So I walked into the place and at the time I was growing my beard out to look like Santa Claus. So I looked like Hagrid walking into the theater with all this going on. And we brought a couple of my nieces and nephews who were at, you know, grandma's house for Thanksgiving and TJ Thomas, my uh, nephew, four years old at the time. I had never been to a movie theater before. Uh, and number one, number two, he had a thing about monsters at four years old. He really had, at the time he was having trouble with monsters. And so what film do we go to see? Monsters Incorporated. Oh, right. That's right. So, that chapter. You know, and we're in the front row because that's the only place you can set up a table in order to have a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> You're in first uh, so He's very, and he doesn't want any dinner. He just wants candy. But so he's sitting down there and he sees the previews and his eyes are just agog at the whole experience of going to a movie theater. But then that first scene in 
Monsters Inc. rolls out. And I don't know if you remember it, but there's a kid in a bed and it's quiet and he's shivering. And so he's, this is just like Thomas all over the place. And then the monster comes out and he screws it up. And so they say cut and they, you know, this training exercise for the monsters. And then suddenly you see this relief and delight come over Thomas while he's sitting there in the theater. And about halfway through, he jumps up and turns around and says, you guys, this is so great. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Joy, unvarnished joy. It's so interesting. That was really fun. You know what? You just mentioned two experiences in the theater, uh, one of which, actually both of which are probably inaccessible to everybody. You know, the first one where the tent practically blew away. You had a live orchestra in front of the movie, which is always great. Um, and, and, and the second one where not only did you have a Thanksgiving dinner smuggled in, but you had, uh, you know, Thomas there. The yeah. first time, you, you know, like telling this, yep. you how yeah. great it is. I mean, and we talk about the fact that, okay, now we're all watching streaming. Nobody goes to the theater because of the situation. But, you know, the theater experience has always been, you know, revered, but yeah. nobody remembered why. And you just reminded people why it is yeah. So special because anything can happen and probably will. But the movie has yes. to be special too, though. And he, yeah. his examples in That's both true. cases, yeah. they were they were wonderful. And and yeah. it was uh like like now the modern day is when when they'll they'll screen something the first time they'll play Phil Collins for those two guys on YouTube, you know, the right. Yes. and in the air yeah. and you get their reaction. Oh, to have a camera on your nephew the first time he's in a movie theater. <laughs> that would have been great. You have that memory. He could have put yeah. it on the table. That and you know, fun. the idea that you didn't get caught, I once I once got caught carrying a <laughs> bottle of water into a movie. <laughs> it was inside my coat, and it's like, hey, you stop. You know, I mean, New York's a tough yeah. town. You had but- a water cooler. <laughs> I got I got really good at it, and I was actually inspired by Paul Newman when he first started doing his popcorn. Uh-huh. He talked about the fact that he would just well, he was Paul Newman, first of all. Who's gonna tell Paul Newman to get out of the movie theater? <laughs> but he just prayed in there with a paper bag full of his popcorn and say, Who's gonna stop me? So I didn't quite do that, but I had a clever expanding little satchel that I'd have. And I'd, I generally do it when I was going to a theater at a mall. So sometimes like I had an Apple store bag that I'd put my lunch in when I was going to a theater, going to a movie and you know, they're not gonna inspect the Apple store bag. They just figured I was at the Apple store. Right, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I got pretty good at smuggling food, yeah. Yours could take the actual apples in it. <laughs> Munch loudly throughout the movie. <laughs> In the old days, you used to have ushers walking up and down like saying, oh, yeah. off the st-. you know, when I was a kid, that was like, you couldn't do anything wrong. Like if you put a whole table full of Thanksgiving up, you know, they, they would have found you in 30 seconds. Oh, not, yeah, yeah. Not anymore because it's all no. electronic. Well, one of the theaters I went to, which I loved, uh, was Ziegfeld, which oh. still had ushers at the time. Great. great in New York, the great, one in Manhattan? Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. The one that just closed down like five yep. years ago. Oh, yep. that, that was yeah. such a great theater. I saw great Scream theater. there. Ah, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. No, it's a great theater for things like that. That's terrific. But the, I saw, the, I saw Mary Poppins there. The ushers all looked like um, day players in a Godfather film. That's kind of funny. <laughs> that, that, that kept you uh, from getting out of line too much. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I didn't smuggle ushers. any food into that one. No. <laughs> you Don't know, I, I watched something last night. It was really interesting. I was watching on, you know, the YouTube, YouTube, you must love it. Kevin now because your your body of work a lot of it is up there I'm sure that's true Uh, some of it illegally which well yeah you you know know, maybe you don't love it as much but I was watching uh that great uh, comparison between I think it was a zero hour and airplane you know how they oh yes yes that film yes and then watching it um Art I don't know if you knew this you know this you probably do the movie airplane that great comedy was was a remake of of a black and white film called zero arrow and then watching them play the scene side by side i was realizing in a lot of ways airplane is mystery science theater 3000 because they're 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 actually living in a world where they really believe everything that they're saying right and they're reading some of the lines verbatim from zero hour which weren't funny yeah and then there's beat and then the joe comes which easily could have been you guys you know Uh, it was it was something magical about that i got to um host a panel with um uh, David Zucker at uh, Sketchfest last year in San Francisco. Wow. Um, and he was great. And he, he talked about that, that, you know, the more serious that zero hour was, the better it was for them. And the fact that they got the absolute perfect actors for it right. all the way through. Oh, you know? yeah. Lloyd Bridges, Robert Stack. Um, 
How did they get Peter Graves to talk about Roman Gladiator (laughs) films? Oh my! Yeah, I, I wondered about that too, man. They, they, they really pushed the limits of good taste on that with established <laughs> actors, but, but aren't who, who would like their their, their agents must Which, have, and their managers were like don't 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 do that. No, but check this was, out. They had to rein in Lloyd Bridges. Like oh yeah. Lloyd got too into it. Yeah, <laughs> and so did Leslie. And Peter was the one guy they said who. Uh, I'm not sure I should be saying these things. Is oh, this going to work? Uh, <laughs> I thought this was a serious film. Oh my God. And then Robert Stack was the voice of reason. Just go with the flow. Yes. Like somehow he was the one that talked about the ledge. Yeah. Uh, that's hysterical. So, so Kevin, um, tell us a little about as we, thank you for your time, by the way, this is sure. incredible. Yeah, this that's been been I know we, we probably have a lot more to cover and we will, we'll have you back when you're promoting actively promoting, but what right. is it? What movies can you talk about the ones that we might see this year? Do we think we will be riff tracks will be up and running this year? Well, if we do live shows, we have two planned that we weren't able to do last year that we're going to do this year. One of them is called hobgoblins which is arguably uh, it's at least in the top 10 of the worst films you're ever going to see. Really? I don't know. That. Um, it's, it's a, a ripoff of gremlins uh, and a very bad ripoff of gremlins. And the only thing that you rip off are, are just puppets, except they're not good puppets. They're very bad puppets. <laughs> they're just poorly done and poorly staged. And, uh, and you and know that the, world. You know the puppet world. <laughs> yes. And it's a mess. I mean, the film's a mess. And so it's perfect for us. Okay. Um, Who's in it? Uh, um, who uh, nobody. nobody. Absolutely zero squat. Nobody you would recognize. But the other film we're doing is the fourth in the Amityville Horror series. Oh. Um, which I did not see. Who was in that one? Patty Duke was in it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but it's, it doesn't take place in Amityville. It takes place in like central coastal California. Of course. Um, but because the Amityville house finally gets shut down by these priests who have exercised all of the bad stuff, except that the evil spirit that inhabited the Amityville house, uh, possessed a very tacky floor lamp. I'm not kidding about this. (laughs) The floor lamp gets sold at a garage sale to this family in California, and then all hell breaks loose at this house in California. Oh, my Genius. God. Um, so, it, again, it's perfect. There's a, a, a child is, is possessed by the spirit in the lamp, and there's another little kid, a, it's sort of a chubby little smiley kid who uh, gets a, a demonic chainsaw and nearly kills the cat and destroys the house. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Was it a TV movie or theatrical? I, you know, it probably was like made for cable sort of film. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, And when, when you do is what's the process. So when you figure out all the beats and you've got the script, how many times do you run it before you do it live? We, when we do live, we do a lot more polish because we have to provide for laughter. Right. You know, we have to let the, we have to let, let it breathe a little bit more so that people can, we don't want people to stop laughing to hear the next line. Right. We want them to finish their laugh and enjoy it. And so there's a lot more editing and a lot more restraint that goes on for us. And so we just make sure that the jokes we do tell are as good as we can make them. So And that the movie has a lot of space between dialogue, which a lot of bad movies do. Yes, they do. That's like the perfect storm. Kevin, thank you so much for your time with this. And congratulations on like all of your successes and and your continued success. The Kickstarter campaigns, you seem to, everyone you do is is a big one and you always meet your goals. And we're excited uh, to know you and to enjoy. My pleasure. And uh, a suggestion for a guest for you, uh, Eddie. Yes. Get Eddie on. Yes. Eddie Gordatsky. You know what? I, I would love to have Eddie on, but you know that whole thing about Eddie hated people who didn't get it? <laughs> I was in his crosshairs. Oh, from the Art. He oh, saw man. Me. Yeah, I wrote a story. He's in, in the, the book. book. Oh, in my. my book, yeah. there's a story where Eddie meets me for lunch. He invites me for lunch and reads me the riot act. <laughs> and, and it's a strip club, and we're the only two people there sitting out at the stage with one stripper and, you know, a, a crazy uh, waitress. It was the craziest lunch I ever had. And I'm in a suit and Eddie's in a like, <laughs> t-shirt, you know, it was, but just I, I agree. We should definitely try to have him. I, have Eddie. I don't think, I don't know if he's talking to me. Can you guess, Kevin, the, call the, up for us. One tiny, quick little Eddie thing. Uh, we, he came to town and we go out to the fanciest French restaurant in 
you know, the southern part of the Twin Cities. Everyone's in a suit. Eddie's wearing a rat fink t shirt. <laughs> he was That's Eddie. his t shirts, yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll get Eddie. We'll get Eddie. Okay. Good, good tip, Kevin. Thank you very much. Great to Thanks, see gentlemen. you. Thanks, gentlemen. And, and we'll have you back. All right. Good luck with the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you very much. We'll need it. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That was terrific, Art. Some reunion, huh? After 30 years. Man, it was great to see Kevin. It, looks it has great. been a long time. It has been. And uh, I like that he remembered us well. <laughs> it's not yeah, always the case. I mean, fondly. <laughs> yeah, really. And we don't have our own show until now. We have a podcast. But until now, we have been, you know, a little less in the limelight. Although, Vinny, you have. You have been on TV and on the radio in the, in the past 30 years. Over the years, yeah. 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 yeah, but see, I haven't. But it was really nice to hear him say, "Hey, Art, I remember you." You know. Yeah, that was no, no. That that was so good, and I I love when you held up and the audience didn't get to see this. Unfortunately, that Psychotronics book, uh, which was a bible of B movies. Oh yeah, that's where we get all the all the movies for the guys, and it was so nice to hear that it wasn't me. You know, right. he said they they only took like one out of twenty or one out of whatever it was, and um, I always felt like, oh my god, I'm doing a bad job of choosing movies for these guys. How can I do it better? But he said, no, no, we were just picky. No, and and, and again, credit again to Eddie Gordesky for giving you that book, right? You got the book from Eddie, I believe. Yeah, well, that that is one of the gifts that Eddie gave me. Yeah, and one no, of the many many the- gifts. No, and and he was right. He said, look, you're going to have to use this book. You're going to have to memorize this book. And I I read it. I went through it every page, which is yeah, you know, I it's have like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, but it was so well written. Just oh, really, written. you know, it treated the subject better. And I think that's the key because. These, you know, we were playing catch up to these guys. I mean, I, look in my world. I, I, I will say, I did love those kind of the bad movies, so I knew a fair amount of them. But, but Eddie had a deeper knowledge, and the Mystery Science Theater guys obviously had a much deeper knowledge. Well, at the, and at the end of that period, when we were providing movies for them. We all had a deeper knowledge. Yes, and that was one of the gifts that Mystery Science Theater three thousand gave to the world, which is like keeping these keeping these crazy, sometimes terribly made and terrible movies in you know in the public eye and and what's great about it is bringing it up to date uh, i just heard that joel from mystery science theater is is launching another kickstarter campaign to yeah uh, i heard that that's amazing you know when you look back i guess we started this with um started this about 30 plus 32 years ago maybe right 32 years ago this comedy entity has been around for 32 years millions of dollars too like like riff tracks has raised a sizable amount of money over the years to to fund the, the their ability to license some of the bigger movies like we said earlier that they're doing i know and the fact that these guys are still around that the show has been on several networks that the show is going to make another comeback as right. mystery science theater 3000 it's just amazing yeah we got to get joel on here i know we've uh, reached out separately joel if you're listening we love you <laughs> please joel come on we'd love Call to talk us. to you uh well this was another uh, another great uh interview um art i'm really having fun doing this with you i hope yeah. you're having a good time i am having a good time doing it with you i continue to not be art bell and i continue to not be Vinny favali uh, someday we'll be the people, half the men we used to be. Uh, <laughs> until then, this is uh, the Constant Comedy Podcast signing off. See you next week. Or, or I'll hear you next week. You'll hear us next week. Bye-bye. How was that?